Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, a history of the Thirty Years' War. So last time we talked about the Battle of Kempen, which resulted in a minor victory for the Hessians and French. While it ultimately resulted in the French holding onto the gained territory and the Hessians leaving, it still did hurt the Imperials, who needed a win for morale and political needs. And that issue was added onto by Torstensen's campaign that pushed into Habsburg territory, plundering recently untouched lands. The Marshal beat Imperials near Schweidnitz, another minor victory. His campaign showed skill in logistics and planning, having gained essential footholds for later use at Olmutz and Glogau, and pushed the Imperials into Saxony once again. But with that covered, let's get started. Said advancing Swedish army pursued the Imperials, attacking and besieging Leipzig to force the Imperials to battle. He probably had no intention of taking it till he could be sure that there were no Imperial armies that could attack him or break the siege, and attacking a major city like Leipzig would definitely draw out the enemy. And the Empire met him when Leopold Wilhelm with around 26,000 men, to which the Swedes tactically withdrew to Breitenfelds. This was the famous place of Gustavus' victory over Tilly, which cemented the hold Sweden had in northern Germany, which cemented the hold Sweden had in northern Germany. And 11 years later, it would become the location of the Second Battle. Alternately, this battle would be called either the Second Battle of Breitenfeld or the First Battle of Leipzig. Piccolomini was cautious and advised against the battle, but reports about Guberant and the Hessians marching to join them forced their hand. The Imperials, that is. Whether it was true or not, they couldn't be sure, so acting fast was the best chance they had at the moment. If there was an army approaching them, that would mean getting flanked and having to split their focus and forces. And they also outnumbered the Swedes, so even if the Swedes had picked the battlefields, there were still two skilled generals on the Imperial side, and they outnumbered the Swedes. Theoretically, it could be a win, but there was always chance and risk, especially when your opponent could pick the battlefields. The battle would take place on November 2nd, 1642, with both armies camping out at positions, quote, at right angles to the positions of the battle in 1631. So effectively, they were shifted a bit from where the original positions in the battles were from the first time. The Imperials were to the east at Seehausen, facing west across from the Swedes under Torstensen. The ground between them was, was Alunkawald, and there's a shallow valley to the south by the Rishi stream. Torstensen had 20,000 men, outnumbered by 7,000 or so, but he wanted to smash the main army of the Imperials, and with the track record of the Imperials recently, he certainly had a chance of victory. The battle would start at the Rising Sun, the Swedes forming up past the stream on the Linkelwald, the Imperials joining battle by sending 16 cuirassier regiments to flank the Swedish left. For those who don't know, cuirassiers are an armored cavalry regiment. The Swedes shifted the forces to face the oncoming attack, and general combat began by 10 a.m. Woods still separated the Imperial infantry line, but they managed to push the Swedes back with support from guns, the Imperials having taken to the Swedish example by using artillery to support infantry with them close behind. Close enough for support. Swedish cavalry came in from the right, engaging the Imperial left, catching the Imperials by surprise after the Swedes outran their own musketeers. It was standard doctrine for the Swedes to advance slowly with cavalry and musketeers to allow the musketeers to support the cavalry. The first entire line of Imperials broke, leaving the Saxons' second line to try to hold back the onslaught. The move definitely showed the benefits of having more independent officers, who probably made the decision to rush the unprepared regiments, seeing that surprise was more important than getting the guns that would help with support and combat. It also helped because the Imperials couldn't position their cavalry right due to the surprise, and those could have been a good counter to the Swedish cavalry, although it is noted that the Imperial cavalry was of lesser quality compared to the Swedes in this battle. So the Saxons, despite the surprise, were overrun due to the superior numbers of the Swedes. And especially as the fighting began, the musketeers would join the fighting, putting more weight on the Imperial left. The Saxons routed and half the cavalry chased them, while the remaining forces helped out the center and the left flanks of the Swedes. The left flank had gone a little differently, and the leader of the left, Slang, had advanced steadily and slowly, which allowed the Imperials to 
put up a better fight. Slang had actually been killed in initial volleys. And the Croats, under the Imperials, flanked the Swedes from the north, Koenigsmark having to rally the men and hold the line until the men from the right flank, under Wittenberg, came to assist them, turning the tide of the desperate fighting. This was General Wittenberg, not the men from the city. The left flank probably could have turned the battle for the Imperials, or at least made this a harder fight, but the well-trained and disciplined Swedish troops being able to hold on probably saved the battle for the Swedes. With superiority on both flanks, the Swedes drove the Imperial infantry back to the center, which was still holding the fighting at a fever pitch. Leopold Wilhelm, seeing the battle was turning, had his and Piccolomini's bodyguards lead a counterattack to delay the enemy to allow as much of the army as he could to escape, the two generals getting involved in the fighting. The plan was to have the men escaped into the woods to the north, and Leopold was even nearly killed by a Swedish dragoon, though he was saved because the soldier's gun misfired. I mean, for someone like that, that probably means God is favoring you at that moment, or didn't want you to die there at least. The attack allowed the rest of the army to retreat, but the men who were south of the woods were unable to retreat and fought for another hour before surrendering, ending the battle in a definite Swedish victory. It was a closer victory compared to the first one, but the Imperials were soundly defeated once again. It's 0 for 3 for the Imperials at this point. Torstensen moving troops to reinforce the left and center with a sound move, and in my book, it is what turned the battle. His command was, was showing how good leadership could do a lot for a country and army, and it seemed his newly instilled discipline was doing a lot for the Swedes, along with the reinforcements he brought. Casualties came about to around 4,000 for the Swedes, and the Imperials lost 3,000 killed or wounded, with 5,000 being captured, along with the Swedes capturing the supply train and war chest of the Imperial Army. Sweden was also able to capture 46 guns of the Imperials. This certainly was a large loss, especially on the supply and money front, as losing those can do a blow to any army, as losing those can do a blow to any army, and bolters an army that captured them. Losing a third battle in a row probably wasn't doing any good for Imperial morale, and this battle was the biggest of the last three. And as the news of the battle spread, the Catholics in Germany feared similar events happening like after the first battle, as defeating the main field army meant that Sweden had more room to advance and maneuver. The Bavarians prepared for an attack by summoning the militia, though it should be said that they were still having their own independent forces, they weren't the main army forces. Leipzig surrendered by December 7th, offering an extensive payment to the Swedes to avoid being looted, but they had to accept the Swedish garrison, which would be there for years. Probably the best decision, as we know how bad looting can be for a city, even if it's only looting and not anything worse. Chabnitz was also relieved and reconnected to the rest of the Swedish territory, having been on its own for three years, which I mentioned Chemnitz as a Swedish bastion in 1639 or so, so it had been there holding off raiding and such for a long while. Friedberg was attacked in February 1643, but was repulsed, the Swedes losing 2,000 men. Minor point, but the biggest consequence at the moment was the fact that Saxony was contemplating making peace with Sweden, seeing that their lands were under threat once again. In this battle, in this victory, when others look at their own diplomatic relations and think about how they wanted to negotiate with the Swedes. Duke Wilhelm of Brandenburg saw that the Emperor was willing to sacrifice Pomerania to secure peace, so he tightened his relations with Sweden, changing from a ceasefire to a truce by May 9th, 1643. The main difference between a truce and a ceasefire is a ceasefire is just no fighting, but you're still at war, whereas a truce is no official fighting and there are some level of friendly relations. A ceasefire can lead to a truce or greater, it just is a delay of combat for a negotiation or a specific event. This would actually hold till the end of the war, and would show that Brandenburg could be trusted, which resulted in Sweden giving back some held territory in good faith, particularly Frankfurt and Crossen. It also meant that Sweden didn't have to worry about taking supplies from there or having to pay for men to support there. And the France would also add more to this by late 1643, allowing the Westphalian holdings of Friedrich Wilhelm to join that truce. 
The Hessians would also leave any territory held in Cleves besides Lipstadt. This freed up the Elector to have more autonomy. Those people would still have to pay a war tax, although it was technically for the expanding Brandenburg army more than the Imperial army. This truce, even if it removed an ally, or potential ally, took any worry off France and Sweden as they could trust that their northern holdings were less threatened. This truce also went against the policy of those who agreed to the peace, that they couldn't make a peace independent of the Emperor. But after losing three battles, the Emperor was not in a position to threaten them militarily, which meant no reprisals. And that was due to the fear of breaking the peace or the terms, military or other political reprisals. The Elector justified it by saying that his military position required it, which is a reasonable one in my books, as this new Swedish army was doing a lot of damage under Torstensen, and Brandenburg had a smaller army than the main Imperial one. Others would follow this example, actually, although this was more under the table, as they could still have reprisals done to them. This included stuff like steadily pulling back from the war, like giving less troops and the like, or giving less money, and local administrations making deals with the French and Swedes to leave them alone, either offering supplies or money. Not not a ton, but enough to keep the Swedes from active raiding and the like. Bavarian forces in Heidelberg even paid a French garrison nearby specifically to set up looting and raiding in the lower Palatine. It's better to have guaranteed money than money where you might not be able to find it. Wurzburg and Bamberg had signed a formal treaty with the Swedish garrison at Erfurt, seeing it as a better long-term options. The bishop would keep paying contributions to ensure that hostages would be released, and would even big back trade, which Sweden agreed to. It was only 500 florins a month, and this effectively kept them neutral, which would also hold to the end of the war, actually. This would show a pattern of many people pulling back from the war as much as they could, and went against the older idea that this war was a super destructive phase of the war like the 1630s, when if multiple people are pulling back and dialing back their forces and the like, people don't necessarily want to be fighting right now, which, you know, logical. Others outside Germany were also pulling back a bit. Spain agreed to a truce with France at Dole, which would last until the Treaty of Westphalia. The Upper Rhine, by extension of that, would be relieved a bit, which allowed France to give Mumpelgard back to the Wurnberg administration in 1645, with the cost being neutrality, which the administration agreed to. And the Swiss worked to get all of Burgundy to be neutral after France attacked Franche Comte which was an agreement by France and Spain in 1522. They're trying to help it be more neutral again. Everyone was getting tired of the fighting, and if paying someone off to ensure trade opened and you wouldn't be attacked, then so be it. The economy was still bad, but this would slowly help recover it. And France and Sweden were also giving back less strategically important lands to show good faith, which showed that they would rather have effectively neutral people than force everyone to join them. They had their own forces, and every prince that left the war meant less men and resources for the empire, even though a good chunk of the Swedish army still was made up of German forces. In the loss of three battles and the increasing number of neutral parties meant the authority of the Austrians was reduced. Even with the no peace that had been signed, it showed that the agreement relied on Ferdinand having the authority to enforce any consequences of breaking it, which is essential to any government. How can you enforce something if you don't have the power to enforce it? The big electors still declared their full support for the emperor, though as stated above, many were negotiating under the table with the enemy to keep their parts neutral, or at least the more war front territory. The fact that there had been no real victories in the last couple of years had drained some support from the emperor, shown physically through less resources and money flowing into the war effort. In 1641, the imperial recess delayed judicial reforms, promising a deputation over the topic. A deputation was a council or committee drawn from the three levels of imperial states. This deputation came into being, and 
in May 1642, and instead of exclusively supporting the Emperor and the Austrians, the Bavarians, Cologne, and Maine showed their willingness to cooperate broadly with the cities and princes, which would decentralize power a bit. And those were three major electors the Emperor needed to keep his political control. Keep in mind, this wasn't all of them, but it's not a great sign for the central power of Ferdinand, which we know he wasn't as centralized as his father, but still. The deputation also expanded its power to include peace negotiations and military discipline, which challenged the Emperor's power, which had been claimed since the initial rebellion in Bohemia, which was that only the Emperor could negotiate peace with Sweden and the like. Ferdinand had also received pushback when he called the to talk about renewing the taxes that had been agreed upon at Regensburg, but many were not necessarily as happy to agree to this. I argue this pushback really came about because of the structural flaw of the HRE. While Sweden and France were more centralized and didn't require the general agreement of all the territories, each elector and prince of the HRE had their own land, they had their own men, it was harder to get everyone together. I did discuss a long while ago that while there was loyalty to the emperor through them owing the Austrian Habsburgs due to being given lands or titles by the ruler, that will only go so far. Long-term loyalty is harder to garner, and they were good at it, the Austrians that is, but they needed time to really let the new structure and new land and new titles sink in. The HRE structure was hurting the war effort, and Ferdinand needed military victories to ensure that he could shore up his support, and losing multiple battles in a war damaged that prestige. The tide had definitely turned, and the 1643 campaign of the Swedes would show if the Allies could continue the momentum. I want to thank you all for listening. The social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3decot at gmail.com. Reminder that I have a Patreon. Thank those who support me. And please review and spread the word. And I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>